Hey everybody, welcome back to the Leverage Podcast. My name is Ari Mizell and I'm solo today. My guest is Ozan Varol, who is a law professor at Lewis and Clark University and the creator of the Effective Lawyer program. So Ozan, thank you for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here, Ari. It's always nice speaking to you, Ozan. And just to let everyone know, also Ozan is one of the Leverage Certified Coaches. He is a productivity whiz and he happens to have a focus in the legal space, which there's a lot of things that, that uh, are there to be improved. So, um, Ozan, first of all, why don't you just give a little background on who you are. You're obviously not an American, based on your name, right? So give the whole history of how you kind of got to, into law and how you became the effective lawyer. Yeah, absolutely. So I was born and raised in Istanbul, Turkey. I lived there for 17 years. I learned English as a second language, so I grew up in a family that had no English speakers in it. I started learning English in, in middle school. And then I came to the United States really for all the cliched reasons. <laughs> I thought I'd have better employment opportunities, better educational opportunities um, here. And at the time, I wanted to be a rocket scientist. So I went to college and majored in astrophysics. Um, I actually had dreams of becoming an astronaut someday. I uh, went and got my pilot's license. I used to fly Cessna 152s and 172s. And... Yeah. And then my senior year of college, I realized that I wasn't a fan of math and physics, which is sort of bad news for an aspiring uh, rocket scientist. So I uh, decided to take a different path. I took a year off after college and um, worked as a paralegal at a small law firm in Washington, D.C., just to see if the legal world was the right fit for me. And it was. Then ended up going to law school and, and becoming a lawyer. I enjoyed the practice of law, but I was really overwhelmed, which sort of is one of the reasons why I started my coaching program. I gave up my hobbies and then I began to think of my life in these like six minute billable increments. Lawyers bill by by the six minutes. So everything I was doing, you know, oh, should I go and get coffee? But I could sit here and bill another 0.2. And so life was coming at me just faster than I could manage it. Um, I was thinking too much, juggling too much and doing too much which is one of the reasons why I left practice and, and went into academia. And last year, I was in New York having a conversation over dinner with a friend. And uh, she looked at me, we're talking about lawyers. She looked at me, she said, you know, there is no such thing as a relaxed, chill lawyer. It just doesn't exist. And I said, oh my God, you're right. And that needs to change. And that conversation also coincided when REU launched, either I got an email from you about the coaching program. So it was the, the perfect timing. And then and signing up for the leverage coaching program was really one of the best decisions I made last year because it gave me all the resources I needed to go from zero to now having a successful, profitable coaching business. So thank you. Well, well thank you for saying so. That's awesome. So, okay, so for, first of all, there's lawyers who work on their own, right? They're just solo practitioners. And then obviously there's lawyers that are part of much larger firms, whether it's their own firm, their partner, or they are, you know, a... Uh, uh, starting out as a, as a lawyer in a larger firm. So what are some of the issues that you see really commonly with, with sort of both those scenarios? So let's start with the solo practitioner. You know, he, maybe it's just some, like him or herself and a paralegal. Yep, definitely. So, so two things there. So most solo law firm practitioners that I work with, one, they still use really antiquated ways of doing business. So um, a lot of my clients are still using post-it notes to record their time, to track their time. <laughs> and then they hand the post-it note to like uh, a paralegal or a secretary, and then that person has to input it manually into like QuickBooks or another invoicing program. So there is really no automation in place. 
Most solo law firm practitioners tend to be the bottleneck. So everyone in the law firm sort of depends on this one person to get anything done. And because they are the bottleneck, things move really slowly, which can be really frustrating both for the, the solo practitioner himself or herself, but also for the people that are working for that person. So those are the sort of the two major problems that, that I see. And, and, and it's interesting because all of these really small tweaks can make a huge difference at the organizational level, right? I mean, like switching, for example, to toggle to track your time can make a huge difference because then, you know, you stop using post-it notes to manually record your time and it becomes much easier to keep track of everything. And the, the other problem there is a lot of solo law firm practitioners that I work with do not capture all of their time. So it's not just a matter of inefficiency, but when you're using post-it notes, you're actually sort of bleeding money. Um, you're not billing your time to your clients. And so using technologies like Toggle can help you get around that. Um, so I would say those are the two major issues that I see with small or solo law firm practitioners. Associates at big law firms, so this is a starting out attorney, they have a different set of problems. I mean, they sort of suffer from some of the same issues, but the, the, the number one problem I see there is procrastination. And number two is perfectionism, which is actually related to, to procrastination. And a lot of these bad habits actually start out in law school. Uh, it pays me to say this as a law professor, but law school sets attorneys up for overwhelm in practice. There is only one final exam for most classes, which breeds procrastination. You bring graded on a curve, so every little bit helps, which gives law students the, the motivation to sort of do everything that they can to get it right, to get it perfect, which breeds perfectionism. And then when they go out and actually begin their law practice, all of these little habits get exacerbated. It's actually, it's a pretty good, like sort of diverse set of problems, but there's this commonality that we see. And I see this a lot too when I'm dealing with law firms. What are some of the technologies that you've seen, particularly for lawyers that are, that are really helpful? Because there's, well, without prompting you, what, what are some of those, that, like some of the apps maybe or, or, or things that are out there for law firms or lawyers that you like? Sure, yeah. Um, so I've used Trello a lot with, uh, with small law firms particularly uh, because most small law firms don't have any... Um, good way of keeping track of tasks that they have delegated. I mean, they do it sort of the old-fashioned way, which is like yelling down the hall saying, hey, do this or do that. But then there is no track record of who that task was assigned to, what they did on it. So Trello has been a game changer for most small law firms. And then the other I mentioned, which is a way of keeping, your, keeping track of your time, that's Toggle. So that's really helpful. And you can hook it up with, as you know, Ari, with all sorts of other software like Chargeify, to really automate the billing and, and invoicing process. I've used Slack quite a bit uh, with small law firms to just to, for their internal communications, because again, they, they sort of use email for, for internal communications. And the problem with that is, you know, like I was talking to an attorney yesterday, he said he's got 650 emails sitting in his inbox. And um, so it's, it's impossible to sort out the unimportant from the important and the internal communications the important internal communications get lost in the mix, which sort of exacerbates the bottleneck problem that I talked about before. So Trello, Slack, and Toggle have really been godsends for a lot of the, particularly the small law firm practitioners that I've, I've worked with. In terms of the associates, you know, rescue time has been really good just to make them aware of how they're spending their time. So they're already tracking their time, but they're not really tracking how they're spending their time. So yeah. like email and writing and whatnot. And so... One of my clients, for example, realized after she installed Rescue Time that she was spending 60% of her time on email. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but 
it makes you question as to whether or not an attorney's time is best spent writing emails 60% of the time. Yes, of course. Right. So, uh, and that's just, the funny thing about the timing for me is I, I mean, I've seen lawyers like, so my uncle, actually, I don't think my uncle does this anymore, but he's in his uh, late sixties, but even younger uh, lawyers, I see them using like manual timers on their desks sometimes, like almost like, like I've seen chess clocks on people's desks. Absolutely. Yeah. I was one of these people. I would use post-it notes to record my time in practice. And again, it's like, it's so inefficient. There's one more thing for you to think about. Not only are you like immersed in all of these cases, but then you're also constantly having to remind yourself to keep track of your time. And then again, like I mentioned before, you're also not capturing all of the time that you're actually spending on your client's tasks. Now, what about like outreach? Like, cause I know that that's something that I see a lot with, with, uh, the lawyers that I talk to as well is that they're like CRMs essentially and you know how they're doing networking, how they're sort of systematizing that and follow-ups also seem to be kind of a problem. Yeah, definitely. Um, and a lot of these small law firm practitioners, I mean, they, um, they don't really have the resources to set up these, you know, large scale marketing campaigns. And so uh, many of them work with SEO. Um, a lot of them work with video marketing and really most of my clients in the small law firm world rely on word of mouth. Um, so they rely on referrals from other happy clients to, uh, to generate more business. So it's in their interest to keep clients as happy as possible, which leads to a slightly different problem, which is so clients in this day and age with instantaneous access to information also desire instantaneous access to their attorney. And so a lot of my clients get, you know, texts at, I don't know, 9, 10 at night. They're constantly on the phone with, with their clients which makes it really hard for them to get work done, right? Which is to like sit down and actually have, say, an, an uninterrupted one hour chunk of time to write a brief. And so I work with them to try to carve out those focused time periods too for, for deep work when they're not constantly, constantly being interrupted by client text messages or phone calls. That actually, the brief one got me thinking about something else too. So what about delegation law firms? I, I know that control issues are already something that a, a lot of lawyers probably deal with, but how do you see that sort of playing in, in terms of like a, a, a blocking point and where they should be outsourcing or delegating more? Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned that, Ari, because that's a huge problem as well. I think I actually heard the story from you, but you know, one of Frank Sinatra's secrets to success was that he did not move his own pianos, but he he focused on his one unique ability, which was singing. Right? He could not have become Frank Sinatra if he was hustling to sell concert tickets and if he was you know, dealing with the staging and the lighting. And a lot of um, both associates and small law firm practitioners move their own pianos. And I was one of these people in practice. I remember, my, I remember my very first week in my law practice, one of the partners in my office asked me to locate this one expert report from a case that had been archived and closed a long time ago. And I spent like six hours on a Saturday going through boxes, really poorly organized boxes to try to locate this one expert report when I, I had no idea that I could have like delegated that to a paralegal or a legal assistant. I thought, well, the partner gave it to me, so I have to do it myself. So that mentality exists in, in a lot of lawyers that I work with as well. And so, I mean, the thing that I, I, I try to tell them, I try to uh, get them to understand is... If something can be done 80% as well by somebody else, you need to delegate it. And if you don't delegate it, then you're not going to have time in your day to do the, the important work. I mean, it becomes, uh, for a lot of them, it becomes sort of death by a thousand cuts. It's like two minutes here, two minutes there, two minutes there. And then by the time you know it, you know, you spend two hours on tasks that could easily have been delegated to either an administrative assistant in your office 
or to a virtual assistant. And, and so I, I definitely try to work with lawyers on that as well because they're not used to delegating. goes back to the point about perfectionism as well. Because they're perfectionists, they think that they are the only ones who are capable of doing this and whatever this might be, right? I mean, this might be even like making dinner reservations, but they feel like they need to go in and do it themselves as opposed to delegating it to somebody else and getting that off their plate. And that makes a huge difference for a lot of my clients. What are some of those things that lawyers can delegate that they, and possibly even to a virtual assistant that they may not think they can? And one example in my mind is that I know that there are plenty of services that will do brief writing for you. And they're in other countries, not in America. It's much cheaper and the quality, as far as I'm been told is, is quite good. But that's one of those things where somebody like, I can't outsource brief writing. So what are some of those things that they can and should be that they might not be aware of? Yeah. So I, I because most of my clients are really reluctant to, uh, to sort of like tackle a big project or delegate a big project like brief writing to another service, I really encourage them to start small. So just like just begin by delegating making dinner reservations, right? Begin by delegating like purchasing something. Begin by delegating. And like, a lot of these attorneys actually try to figure out things like SEO on their own. And SEO is certainly not the unique ability of lawyers, right? And, and SEO is something that can definitely be delegated to somebody else. Um, so that's, that's another, that I, another area that I see come up quite a bit, especially with, um, with small, small law firms. So I encourage them to use. And then, you know, even if they have an associate working for them, so an associate lawyer, they're reluctant to have that associate lawyer in some cases to take the first stab at writing a brief. And it's like, well, well then why have you hired this person, right? Um, and if, if this person right, can get you started, and that's the other thing is like, because they're perfectionists, they have a hard time getting started. If you can simply delegate this brief writing task to someone in your office, just so they can hand you a sh- what might be a shitty first draft, but you can take that shitty first draft and you can make it better, make it good enough to submit to a, to a court. So I encourage them to start small just because delegation is really a foreign concept for, for most lawyers. And then I also, um, I also sometimes refer them to like virtual receptionist uh, services as well because they're usually relying on a full-time receptionist to get anything done. And sometimes that's not the, the most sort of um, effective use of their time and money either. So then when someone works with you for, with coaching, what does that look like? What's, what's your coaching look like for lawyers? Sure. Um, so I don't do any... Um, any sort of paid advertising. So all of my clients come in through referrals from other happy clients or from speaking engagements. And so there is a 15, uh, free 15-minute phone call that they initially set up with me. Um, and you can do that by going to effective.lawyer. And that's just to make sure that we're the right fit. I don't work with everyone. I want to first verify that I can give you a positive return on your investment before we actually sit down and start the coaching program. So that free 15-minute phone call is is how it usually starts. And then I'll usually schedule, if I determine that we're the right fit, I'll schedule a one hour, what I call sort of kickstart your transformation session, where we deep dive into how they work. So we go through everything that they do on a daily basis. And just so I can um, identify the areas of inefficiency and areas where real fixes can be made. And that one hour phone call then uh, usually transfers into something much bigger where I'm either helping them. It's usually a combination, actually, of working one-on-one, say, you know, having a phone call once every two weeks, talking to them uh, over Zoom, communicating them by email, and then also helping them set up some of the automation mechanisms that we, that we talked about. 
Yeah, that's cool. So, and and then again, like, is that do usually a few months kind of program, or like, how long does it kind of take people to really see those kind of results? Yeah, definitely. So the automations, uh, so optimizing and automating, then this is usually for small law firms. That portion, automating, for example, their client intake process, uh, their billing and invoicing, their document management and whatnot, that usually takes about two months to get them fully up to speed and to train everyone in their office on how to use that software. And by the way. And implementing some of that stuff can easily save them 20 hours a month. Um, it can really make a huge change at the, at the organizational level. So that takes about two months. But then beyond that two-month period, usually most of my clients want to stay with me um, to do personal coaching. So even after this, sort of the, the automation is done, um, they'll want to stay with me and, and have that recurring phone call with me as a method of you know, making sure that they're keeping on track and making sure that they have someone that they can be accountable to. Yeah, awesome. So, how do you kind of organize your time? Because you're you're writing for several publications, you're teaching, you're coaching now. How do you organize your time? A great question. I rely on batching, so I batch everything. So my teaching days, and this varies from semester to semester, but they're usually on two days, and those are when I'm on campus full time. I have office hours all day. I meet with students. I attend faculty meetings, and so those are my teaching days. And then I always carve out one day for one or two days. For coaching, I have more time over the summer because I don't teach, uh, so I'm taking on more and more coaching clients this summer. Um, and then I dedicate one or two days to, to writing as well. And that's really, I've found that to be the, the best way as opposed to switching from one task to the other, which can really leave you distracted and unfocused and exhausted, batching everything together in a single day, um, I've found to be the most effective way of, of getting things done. And that's how I'm able to juggle all of these multiple balls in the in the area i have a book coming out that i finished writing uh last year at the end of last year um that will be published on september 1st by oxford university press awesome so this is the last question i always like to ask is what are your top three pieces of advice for people to be more effective and you can focus as a lawyer if you want but just in general to be more effective so as i mentioned i used to be a, a rocket scientist before i went into law and one of uh, Isaac Newton's laws, his second law of motion stayed with me. And actually, I think it applies equally to being effective as well. And the, the second law is objects at rest tend to stay at rest and objects in motion tend to stay in motion. So how does that apply to, to effectiveness of productivity? Starting is the hardest part. So once you get in motion, whether it be like delegating a task to somebody else or for a lawyer, it might be, you know, opening up a Word document and just jotting down your thoughts for five minutes on this like 50 page brief that you have to write. Once you get in motion, you will tend to stay in motion. But if you're at rest, if you haven't started, you will tend to stay at rest. Um, so, so I think that's, that's one thing that I try to apply and one, one thing that I try to work with with my clients. The best way to take away the power of procrastination is to begin. I, I found that starting is by far the hardest part. So this I actually heard on a podcast interview with Sarah Blakely. She is the founder of Spanx.com. She went from selling fax machines door to door to becoming, I think, the world's like youngest self-made female billionaire. And when she was growing up, Sarah's father would ask her and her brother the same question over dinner every week. This was a question. What have you failed at this week? Now, most parents ask their children, like, like, what have you accomplished this week? You know, Joe got an A-plus on his exam or John made the football team. But no, he would ask her and her brother, what have you failed at this week? And if Sarah didn't have an answer, her father would be disappointed. I try to ask myself that question at the end of each week. And I feel like if I don't have a good answer to it, that I'm not trying hard enough. Um, 
And so, so yeah, I mean, I, and I know the fail fast mantra is sort of all the rage these days in Silicon Valley in many entrepreneurs view failure as a necessary evil on the road to success. But my point is that failure is not an evil at all. I think it's a prerequisite to doing anything different or original. If you're not prepared to be wrong or to fail, you'll be stuck with the status quo. Um, so that's my, my second, second piece of effectiveness advice is to ask yourself, what have you failed at this week at the end of, of each week? And actually inspired by that interview, I um, started a project uh, called Famous Failures. It's at famousfailures.club where I interview successful people, you know, authors, politicians, entrepreneurs, academics from various different fields. And the interviews are only about their failures and what they learned from them. So my first two guests were Seth Godin and Ryan Holiday. And um, I'd love to have you on there at some point too, Ari. And so hopefully that project will, will, uh, will grow. So that's my second piece of advice. And then my third piece of advice, let's see. I, um, I recently read this book called The Beautiful Constraints. It's by... God, the first author is Adam Morgan. I don't remember the name of the, of the second author. Um, but their point is this. We tend to view constraints as treacherous to our work. I hear this a lot from my clients. You know, They say, I don't have enough time or I don't have enough money. I don't have enough resources. And the argument in the book is that far from being impediments to your work, constraints can actually unleash creativity and make you more resourceful. And the best example... Yeah, and the best example I have of this is um, the, the head of a uh, publishing company, Random House, bet the author, Theodore Geisel, that he couldn't write a book using only 50 words. Now, most authors would have walked away from this saying things like, this is impossible, this is nonsense, but Geisel gladly took him up on the offer. Not only that, but he did one better. He wrote a book with just 49 words of one syllable and the word anywhere, and that book, which is Green Eggs and Ham, became the best-selling book authored by Geisel, who's better known as Dr. Seuss. And so just like the way that that 50-word constraint unleashed creativity in, in Dr. Seuss, I think constraints in our life can also unleash resourcefulness and creativity with us as well. And even when you don't have real constraints, you can impose artificial ones. To, to bring out that creativity. Absolutely. All right. So Ozan, thank you so much. Where can people find out more about you, the book, sign up for your coaching if they're in the position to, to take advantage of it? Sure. Yeah. So my coaching program is at effective.lawyer. So that's not effectivelawyer.com. It's effective.lawyer. And um, if they go there, they can download a free playbook called The Effective Lawyer, a playbook for a happier, healthier, and more effective you. I also have a personal website, and that's just myname.com. So Ozan Varol, O-Z-A-N, B as in Victor, A-R-O-L.com. I blog weekly. I have a newsletter that they can sign up for to, to learn more about the book. And then if you're interested in the the Famous Failures project that I mentioned, that is at Famous Failures, that's plural, famousfailures.club. Fantastic. Well, Ozan, thank you. It's always a pleasure to speak to you. I really appreciate your time, and I know that you can do a lot for a lot of lawyers out there who are struggling with their productivity, so thank you. Thank you so much for having me on, Ari. It was a pleasure, as always, speaking with you. Want to create more positive leverage in your life? Visit www.getleverage.com to access additional interviews, our blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe to hear a new episode every week.